1936, um, Harry Rimmer released a book titled The Harmony of Science and Scripture, right? 1936. And in that book, he cites another book from 1890, and he cites uh, proofs of calculations of a missing day, right? So this idea then, and maybe it goes back further than 1936 or 1890, who knows, but the idea that somewhere in the history of humanity, there is this 24-hour period, or close to 24-hour period, that is somehow missing. Uh, despite, at that time, uh, scholars all pretty much dismissing Rimmer's book and his claims as being totally baseless, uh, and all of the authorities basically saying, this is not true science, the legend of the missing day just kept growing. And in fact, it's kind of still alive today. And if you ever have like some time you want to just waste, if you enjoy doing that, you can get on your search engine of choice and type in missing day. And you would think, you, you, you Google search missing day, right? What's going to come up? Guess what comes up? Joshua 10. In fact, as the legend of the missing day grew in the late 90s, a mass email made its rounds and circulated to many people. And it was an email describing a so-called Mr. Harold Hill, who was the president of Curtis Engine Company in Baltimore, Maryland, um, who was a consultant to the space program at NASA. And it relates um, a startling development, all right, you guys? The most amazing thing that God has done for us today. Uh, a group of space scientists, Greenbelt, Maryland, and NASA, actually, they were studying the positions of the sun, the moon, the stars, uh, and they were studying this uh, for the sake of uh, not having their satellites uh, run into things or something of that sort, uh, you know, and, and trying to plot the orbits, etc. But as they were studying thousands of years of these positions of the sun, the stars, etc., what they found was that there was a day missing in elapsed time. They stretched, they scratched their heads, they tore their hair, and there was no answer until finally a Christian man on the team said, hmm, I was at church one day, and they talked about the sun standing still. And they didn't believe him, but they didn't have an answer either, so they said, show us, and he opened up the Bible to Joshua 10, And the astronauts and the scientists said, aha, here is the missing day. Now, I wish I could use this as the opening illustration and introduction to my sermon today. Unfortunately, NASA later released a <laughs> statement because of you know, how widely circulated this email was. And they were forced to say, basically, that this entire email was false that although there was a Harold Hill who worked briefly there in the 1960s, he never had any direct contact with the computer facilities or any of the teams who were in any, doing any of the orbital computations. And in fact, they said it is not possible for them to discover a missing day thousands of years ago. All this to say that today we've read 
one of the passages that have maybe in a certain way most interested, right, Christians and non-Christians alike. There is this remarkable story of something happening in Joshua 10. And what was it that happened on that day? Did we have a literal stopping of the sun and a literal stopping of the moon, or maybe another way of understanding it, a stopping of the earth spinning and turning? Right? Because depending on which perspective you look at it from. Now, you and I all know that if you're in a car that's moving and all of a sudden it stops, what happens? Yeah, you, you feel something, you lurch. Right? And if you're going really fast, you know, there's a noticeable stop and you can get whiplash or etc. So if the earth is spinning and it stops, mm, here's a head scratcher. Did everybody on earth feel it? <laughs> Did everybody all of a sudden fall down at the same time? <laughs> Whoa! Whoa, that was really weird. I don't, what just happened? I don't know. Maybe the earth stopped spinning. Well, today, if you stay with me for maybe 20, 25 minutes or so, I will attempt, all right, to answer the question of what happened, right? And more importantly, what that means for us today. So here we go. I think the story starts in chapter 9. You don't have to turn there. I'll summarize it. Remember, if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, there was the amazing story of what happened at Jericho. There was the sadness of what happened in Ai, but then again, the victory that happened at Ai. And so you have now word spreading in the region of God and the Israelites and their victories. So at the beginning of chapter 9, in verses 1 and 2, what you have is the news reaching these other city-states. Right? So it was a, a collection of city-states, even though they were all in this roughly Palestine area. And for the first time, the first time in chapter 5, what we see is a different response. There's, their hearts melted. But now in chapter 9, all right, what they're going to do is they're going to say, look, we've got a situation. We need to team up. Okay? This is not going to go well for us if one by one we try to stand up to the Israelites. Gibeon, which was, if you look at chapter 10, verse 2, which was, according to scripture, a great city. And not only a great city, but a great city full of warriors. They had a different strategy and a different idea. And it's, this is a fascinating story in, in and of, its, in, uh, of itself. What they decide is, you know what we can do? Let's, let's trick the Israelites into making a treaty with us. So if you start looking at verses 4 and 5, uh, what, what, what the Gibeonites do is they kind of prep all their props to tell this great lie. They use worn-out sacks, worn-out wineskins, worn-out sandals, worn-out clothing. They take you know, provisions, food, bread, whatever it was, and that's dry and old and crumbly, all to make it look like they've been on the road for a very long time. And look at, you know, verse 12, and this is exactly what they say uh, to the Israelites. Look, here's our bread. When we left our house, it was still warm. Now it's all dried up. It's all crumbled because of the journey we've, we've been on. Uh, look at our wineskins, verse 13. These were full of wine. Uh, but now, you know what, because of our journey, 
their burst. Look at our garments. Look at our sandals. You can tell that they've been worn out from this journey. Now, why would the Gibeonites say this to the Israelites? Because they figured out that the Israelites were coming into this specific region. And somehow their God had given this land to them. And what they wanted to do was trick the Israelites in making a peace treaty with them, of making a covenant. And a covenant was not only a a contractual by law kind of deal, but it was an intimate, personal promise as well. And they felt like that would be their best chance to survive. Not to fight the Israelites, not to stand up against their God, but to trick them into a peace treaty by saying, we're not from here. And the Israelites, they look at all of the props, and without, verse 14 says, they didn't consult God on this. They fall for the trick, they fall for the deception, they fall for the lies, and in verse 15, they make a covenant with the Gibeonites to spare their lives. Okay? So now we get to chapter 10, and you've got the king of Jerusalem. This is the first time Jerusalem is actually mentioned in Scripture. He hears about this treaty that the Gibeonites made with the Israelites, and his response is fear. Why would he be afraid? Because he understands the city of Gibeon. It's a great city full of great warriors, and if that city is afraid to fight the Israelites, we don't have a chance. And so he reaches out to four other city-states. These are all city-states that were in sort of the west of the Jordan, southern Palestine. It's a great region and a great area, and they all say, you know what, we've got a five-army alliance we're going to make. Maybe one by one we would fall against the Israelites, but five versus one, we've got a chance. Okay? And I'm not going to go through all the five kings and where they're from again. You could look at it in verse five. It's a struggle for me to pronounce everything. Now, the thing is, you would think that they would join forces and combine and go attack the Israelites. But who do they go fight? Who do they go and make war against? They encamp themselves outside of which city? Gibeon. Not the Israelites, but Gibeon. Israelites were at Gilgal approximately 20 miles away. Now, why would they do that? There's a couple of speculations that we, that, that sort of, you know, uh, we have. And one is that maybe they were just upset. Traitor. Right? You're one, you're like, this, you're, you're part of us, man. You're, you know, you, you're one of those peoples with like, that belongs in the Amorites, Hittites, and all the otherites. And now you're going to make a treaty with the Israelites. Revenge time. Let's get them. We need to send a message to the rest of the city states here, rest of the p- people here. You, we, will, we will stand together against the, the Israelites and the God of the Israelites. A second possible reason is that maybe, maybe there was a lot of strategy going on. I, I don't know if you guys are interested in this at all, but it's fascinating. <laughs> it's like a uh, documentary here. Uh, you know, maybe what they're thinking is, let's test, let's test the strength of this bond here. Let's really see what happens when we attack the Gibeonites. They've just formed this new alliance and this new treaty. How deep does that, that treaty run? I mean, if we attack, will they come to the rescue? That's a possibility. Who knows? But anyways, verse 5, they, they encamp outside. And verse 6, we're, we're told right away, the response of the Gibeonites is they reach out to their allies. Come quickly, 
Help us, save us. It's a clear cry for help. Now what happens starting in verse 7 is really interesting. All right, and we're kind of getting to the heart of what happens on that day. Immediately, Joshua leaves Gilgal, all the people of war with him, all the mighty men of valor. But the thing is, he does this in the dead of night. And he travels that approximately 20 miles secretly. And those five armies have no clue that the Israelites would be there in the morning. And the Lord had said to Joshua in verse 8, look, do not be afraid. It's that same reminder and that same promise. Do not fear them, for I've given them into your hands. This is not your war. This is my war. This is my justice. This is my judgment. Don't be afraid. So Joshua comes upon them, verse 9, suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the result of that late night surprise march is that the Lord threw uh, the five armies into a panic before Israel. And there's this, uh, I mean, it's, it's harsh, it's sad, sometimes it's hard to understand and read, but there's this great blow against uh, those five armies that were trying to attack Gibeon. They're chased away, and as they're fleeing, all right? So the description is, they're on this ascent. And so the plan is, as they're running away, if they could just get to the top, to the crest of that ascent, and start their way down, if they can make it down before nightfall, they buy themselves some more time, right? So they're not just fleeing indiscriminately. They have a plan. They need more time because they're caught by surprise. But you see, for the Israelites, the opposite is true. They need more daylight. Okay? Thus, the famous story of the missing day. Now you have, before even, even the story of the sun stopping and the moon stopping, you already have clear signs and indications that this was God's war and his victory. You have a clear description of what in verse 11? Great stones falling upon the, 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 the armies. And in fact, did I give the right verse? By the way, what did I say? But you guys are all kind of, everyone has like a little bit of a puzzled look. I'm going to make sure I give the right, right verse here. Yeah, this is right verse. <laughs> you guys, did I? Yeah, yeah, okay. You guys made me doubt myself here. Look, they're fleeing, and the description is of the Lord throwing down large stones from heaven on them. All right? And in fact, the description is, that more died from the stones than at the hands of the swords of the Israelites. Okay? And then, verse uh, 12, at that time, then you have Joshua coming to the Lord, and he comes to him in the day when the Lord gave uh, uh, the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And, this, and 
You know, I think there's a little difference here, but I'm, I'm not 100% positive. But it seems to me, at least, you have Joshua speaking to the Lord, and then you have him standing, you know, in front of the Israelites in order to kind of make a little bit of a dramatic, maybe, you know, kind of brave heart kind of moment, like where he's going to get everybody riled up for this final push. Sun, you know, stand still. Moon, stand still, right? Um, What happened? There's a few proposals, right? I'm going to give what I think is the correct proposal last for effect. Uh, One possibility is that we're not actually talking about everything stopping, some kind of Miracle of unimaginable magnitude. The earth stopped. Somehow the rest of the world was frozen in time while only the Israelites and these five armies and the Gibeonites are aware of what's happening here. And everything else in the entire universe was a freezing of time. No, what we have maybe is some kind of local miracle, not of such a grand scale as stopping the earth, but of one providing more light. They've proposed some kind of refraction of light that allowed more light to be in the battle area than normal, or the light was kind of diffused in some way. You had certain things in the sky, etc. There's many different possibilities uh, for how you could have more local and natural light, and that's one proposal. Another interesting proposal is that we're dealing with the opposite effect, not the sun staying up in the sky, but of a solar eclipse. Now that involves what I call linguistic gymnastics and saying, no, this means that and this means this. So I'm not gonna spend too much time on that today. If you are super curious, you can shoot me an email. Another was that what we're looking at here is not Joshua's request for a miracle of extra daylight, but was very interesting. The people of Palestine were very superstitious. They had astrology. They had a lot of bad luck signs, bad omens. And interestingly enough, you know what was a terrible omen for them? When in the same sky, at the same time, you would see the sun and the moon. Except on the 14th day of the month, when it was not considered to be a bad omen. I'm not sure why. And so the proposal then is that what Joshua is actually asking for is, you know, and I don't know if you've ever seen it, but yeah, it happens, you know, you'll see the sun, you'll see the moon, right? Sometimes it's pretty bright outside and you can still see the moon out there. And what they want is for both of them to be in the sky so that they would look and see, oh no, this is really bad. And that they would be discouraged and it would just, you know, add to what's already going on. And of course, finally, which is maybe considered to be more the historical and traditional view, is that you have an actual, tremendous, in so many ways, unimaginable miracle. And that it's so tremendous that even the author can't describe it, so it would be difficult for us to understand it completely. What's clear though, right, is that there's an extra biblical resource that talks about this, the book of 
Jashar. And for, for it to be mentioned here, maybe it's not like, oh, yeah, yeah, let's look up the book of Jashar right now. But for the people then the, who was reading and hearing Joshua, it would have been, oh, okay. And what, what is being described in, in both of these texts? Almost an extra day of sunlight. Okay, almost an extra day of sunlight. Now, I will say this only because I found it very interesting. And I don't know, some of you may walk out if you're super curious, and then you may find this on your own, and then you're like, what? What is this? It's a very interesting argument against this view. And the argument is this. Look at what he says in verse 12. Sun stands still at Gibeon, moon in the valley of Aijalon. Now, if you look at a map, Gibeon, okay, is east of the valley of Aijalon. Why does that create a problem? That means you have the moon, all right, to the west setting, and you have the sun rising in the east, which would make it what? Morning, not late afternoon. So how could Joshua be asking for extra daylight when he's describing a situation of early morning versus late afternoon? If, if that's hard for you right now after lunch, don't worry. It's, it's okay. <laughs> really, if that's what you're going to get stuck on, you're going to have a difficult life. Uh, you know, in our movie-affected minds, we have a time frame, a timeline for how we like to see things happen. And I don't think it matters when Joshua actually said this. There is also the possibility that the battle was quick and sudden, that the retreat was sudden. Uh, there could also be, I think, the very real possibility, look, he's standing in front of the Israelites and he's saying something for effect, and I don't think at that point he's necessarily concerned about how accurate he is about the time of day and the positions of the sun and the moon. I mean, I've, we've all had moments in our life where we will say things not for accuracy, but for effect. And the idea, though, I think is, look, this is not poetry. This is not just figurative language. This is describing something that happened on that day that goes beyond, beyond our ability to accomplish on our own. Is that much clear? I think so. It was out of Joshua's strength or know-how or ability to do what he was asking for. It was outside of the Israelites or the Gibeonites or any astrologers or scientists or theologians or magicians or lot casters. No one knew how to do what Joshua was asking God of. And so I stand on the belief that he was asking for a miracle. Something that was so not common and so outrageous and so different that there was only one being in the entire world, in the entire universe, that you could make such a request from. The creator. Not only the creator of the universe, but the governor of the universe. And if you believe 
that God can say, let there be light, and it creates the bodies of light in the heavens, then for sure, the mystery of the lurching earth can be taken care of by the let there be, fill in the blank, and there exists creator. But you see, what's super interesting to me is that this day is described in a special way in verse 14. I mean, even after the story of what happened at Jericho, of an entire nation people group walking around the city for seven straight days and then blowing their trumpets on the last day and watching walls collapse. Even more unique, more special, more memorable in a way than that because look at how it's described. There has never been a day like this before or since. Never. But we tend to think there has never been such a day because somehow the sun must have stopped. But the verse says there's never been such a day for a different reason. Why? Because God, the Lord, the creator of the universe, heeded the voice of a man. The voice of a man. You see, the amazing thing for us today as we read Joshua 10, we realize we're not on the same battle war path as the Israelites. We have read the Sermon on the Mount. And if you've read the Sermon on the Mount, we know we are not justified in using violence in any means, even if it is for the sake of the gospel. Jesus brought the reality of the kingdom when he says that we must even turn the other cheek that we must forgive, that we must be meek. But we are reminded that we are engaged in a spiritual battle, that our battle is different. We're fighting, yes, evil, yes, sin, yes, the lies and deceits of Satan and all the false religions of the world that have such a deadly ending. We're fighting, but it's a spiritual battle. But here's the amazing thing that Joshua 10 reminds us of that because of what Christ did on the cross, when the curtains were split in two and the sky was darkened, we have free access to come into the presence of a holy and living God and we can make our requests known to him. Have you ever thought about how amazing that is? I was sitting in our church office, and because our, our church office phone number is publicly listed, I got a random call from somebody. She was elderly, and she was complaining about some of the rent rules and how prices had been skyrocketing, and she, feel like, she just felt like everything was unfair, unjust. And I asked her, well, how can I help you? And she said, she's written, and this was when uh, Obama was in office, she says, I've written a letter for the president. But no matter how many times I send it to him, he doesn't respond. And at that point, I was kind of like, whoa. Why did I pick up this phone? <laughs> Should I let it go to the answering machine? No, I'm kidding. I was, I was really concerned. But I did not know how to tell her or what advice I could give her. 
on how to make sure the president responds to your letter. And I was, and so I kind of started off, ma'am, I think President Obama has a lot on his plate this week. And I know it sounds like I was being sarcastic, but I was trying to be serious because she was in so much pain. But I had no clue. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to give her access to the president. But her complaint was, he is my president, and I voted for him. I said, well, did you try maybe like, like our, our senator? I've written to them. Oh, did you try like our city officials? I've written to them. No one has responded to me yet. It's interesting. Most of us think, yeah, that's normal. What person in any kind of position of power is going to respond to my letter complaining about my rent going up? Do they even have time to open up that email if I sent it? Of course not. They're busy fixing everything else they're fixing or dealing with everything else they're dealing with. I can't shoot him an email about my personal problems. The senator, the governor, the mayor, whoever it is that's you want to write to. No, that's a given for us. Yeah, Joshua 10 and scripture tells us the creator of the universe The one who holds the sun and the moon and the stars in their place says, I want to hear what you've got. Come to me. Make your request known. I give you that access. You want to complain about your rent? Come to me. You want to complain about someone not treating you right? Come to me. I want to hear it. In fact, he commands us to pray. Isn't that amazing? A funny story, I didn't get to share this with first service, so this is a benefit of coming later. (laughs) It's about my daughter, of course. She's upstairs, I'm downstairs, and one night she sent me a text on my phone, and I was a little confused. I was like, what was she? She's requesting something, and I was like, oh, where are you? She's like, my room. I said, what? (laughs) Put my phone down, and I yelled at her, come downstairs! And she's like, what? Come here. Sit down. What did you want? Come and talk to me. Hey, we all know it's easy to say no to a text. It's easy to say no to an email, but you you get face to face with someone and it's a lot harder. That's what God is giving us, that face-to-face time. There's no barriers. There's no people standing in the middle. You don't pray to someone to pray to someone to pray to someone to pray to you, to pray to God. We get direct access face-to-face. Come and pray. Come and ask. Amen? This is what's amazing. And why I think in verse 14 you have this complete shock. God... The Lord heeded the voice of a man. Today, I'm reminded of Luke 18.1, as Jesus is about to tell a, a parable. He says, look, pray. Pray always. 
and don't lose heart. Why would Jesus say that to his disciples and to his people? God is a God who hears. Amen? Not only is he a God who hears, he is the God of the universe. Colossians 1:16 and 17 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him, in him all things hold together. The God who can hold the sun and the moon is the one who says, Come to me and pray to me, and don't stop praying to me, and don't lose heart. But not only is he that kind of God who invites us and says, don't stop coming and don't lose heart, not only is he the creator and king of the universe, he's also the one who's decided to love us. And Romans 8.28 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. See, I think Joshua 10 is a great reminder for us to come before our living king, creator, God of the universe, who's all-powerful, but who loves us and who's made his promises to us, who is the one who will say, I give you victory, I've done it, I grant it to you. Come, don't lose heart. Now, this is not a blanket promise that we could ask for whatever we want and he's going to fulfill it. The thing about Joshua was that one thing he understood was the heart of God. He was in line with the calling and the purpose and the plan of God. And maybe for some of us, that is the biggest problem we face, is how in line and in tune with and in accordance are we with the plan of God and the purpose of God for our lives. Because when those things match up, when God's plan and his heart and our desires and our requests and our, uh, you know, askings, when those things line up, yeah, it's powerful. And there's victory, amen? So that was my attempt to explain the missing day. It may be a little bit unsatisfactory to you. And if it is, I will just say, look, maybe one day you'll get to ask him himself. Until then, don't stop coming before him. Don't stop asking. Don't stop praying. And don't lose heart. He's the God of victory and of life. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for just a reminder throughout Joshua that you are a God who is in control. You're in control of all things. Even the things that confuse us and the things that we have trouble understanding and seeing clearly, it's clear and easy and possible for you. And Dear Heavenly Father, the things that we face in our daily lives sometimes discourage us, sometimes make our hearts melt, sometimes cause us to fear. But our prayer request today is that you would make us into a people who never stop coming into your presence, who never stop seeking, who never stop asking, who never stop needing and desiring your help and your love, that we would never lose heart, Lord. Pray all these things in Jesus' name.